You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good afternoon, or indeed good morning, as some of our uh, participants will be, and including our guest speaker today. My name is Professor Des O'Neill, along with Professor Mary Cosgrove of the Department of German in Trinity, and um, Shelby Zimmerman, who is our programme coordinator, uh, welcoming you to our 2022-2023 seminar series in Medical and Health Humanities in Trinity College Dublin. This comes from our Trinity Long Room Hub, which is a focal point of collection for research and postgraduate education in the humanities and arts in Trinity. This is the longest running uh, seminar series in Medical and Health Humanities in Ireland. And we're delighted after the COVID pandemic, where we had to go completely online, is we now have a hybrid uh, arrangement. And we'd ask for some forbearance if there's any slight glitches. So uh, we have in-person and we have online. The format of the meeting will be, uh, we're delighted to have as our first speaker, Dr. Elizabeth Kelly Gray of the Department of History of Towson University in Baltimore. And uh, she will deliver her talk. And if any questions or comments for afterwards uh, will be directed in the chat towards me and we'll field these questions at the end. So um, really pleased to have uh, a, a history focus starting off. Um, and in conjunction with the forthcoming book, which promises to be really interesting, um, it's just a great pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Gray, who I understand is usually known by her middle name, Kelly, and we're very pleased to have her start off with the history of drug addiction uh, in the 19th century in the USA, as obviously this is a, an area of clinical practice, and I, I know there are practitioners in addiction studies on, online today, uh, which is hugely shaped by cultural sociological and historical uh, values and it's something that this is the area where the humanities really can bring us uh, a richness of understanding that uh, complements and augments uh, the other elements of addiction studies. So uh, Dr. Gray, thank you very much. Thank you so much, um, Professor Emil, and um, thank you uh, certainly to Shelby uh, for inviting me. I'm I'm uh, delighted to be a part of the um, of the uh, Medicine and Health Humanities seminar series, and thank you to all of you for being here. Um, and I I look forward to your questions after my presentation. So let me just bring up uh, the the accompanying PowerPoint here. Um, and uh, um, I am here to speak about drug addiction in 19th century America. Um, it is a topic that I began to research um, several years ago uh, when I was actually studying the first opium war um, between China and Great Britain in the early 1840s. Um, and uh, um, British merchants uh, had been importing opium into China. The Chinese tried to put a stop to it. They fought a war, Great Britain won, and the trade continued. And I was wondering what it was that Americans thought of this conflict, and I realized I, I couldn't really establish that till I know what Americans thought of opium at the time. And, and I realized that there was work to be done on that. Um, my uh, study is for a book that I have written 
um, it'll be coming out this December, uh, that focuses on drug addiction in America from 1776 to 1914. Uh, I actually found only a, one or two references to cases of what we would call addiction before 1776, um, and I found some in that year. 1914 is the last year in which no drugs were regulated um, at, or it was the last year before the national regulation of opiates and cocaine began. And so I'm really studying the entire era in which the use of drugs was unregulated um, at the national level. Now, before I continue, uh, there are a couple of, uh, of words that I'll be using, and they're, they could be familiar, but I just want to explain my use of them. I refer, as you can see in the subtitle of my book, um, to addiction. And um, addiction is not a term that was frequently used at the time. They were more likely to refer to habitual use, the idea of drug addiction or what we would call addiction being a bad habit, um, still grounded at the time in a notion many had that it could be uh, ended with the use of willpower rather than recognizing it as a disease, which is how addiction is currently um, is currently referred to. I, I will be um, using both terms. I will also sometimes use the word habitué to refer to people who were addicted. It is a term that was widely used in the 19th century. And um, what I see with it is that it was a term that was used, but at the same time, it did not have um, the negative connotation um, that, for example, um, referring to someone as an addict would have. So just a couple of terms. Now, um, I've mentioned that there are a couple of important years with this. I, my study goes up to 1914 because uh, there was no national regulation of drugs at the time. There is a date in between that I think is also significant, and it's a focus on the late, 18, on the late 1860s. In 1867, Harper's New Monthly Magazine, um, which was based in New York, published this article called What Shall They Do to Be Saved? And it was an article published anonymously um, in which the author was describing people he knew who struggled with drug dependency um, and were having difficulty in ending their use. The following year, a book was published by this man. Uh, his name is Horace Day. And the book uh, was called The Opium Habit with Suggestions as to the Remedy. And um, Horace Day, who was himself a doctor, was describing his own um, uh, challenges with uh, habituation or addiction to opium and his difficulty in ending his use. Now, I'm highlighting these because before 1867, although we see occasional works being written that were focused on um, uh, that were focused on drug addiction as a domestic problem, they were sporadic. They You'd see one, and then you wouldn't see one for years. There would be a couple that would be in medical journals, which, of course, were really not read beyond the medical community. It is in 1867, however, and 1868 that we see these two works appear. And um, soon thereafter, there's a stream of works published that really does not end. And I believe that part of the reason that this is when it becomes really a publicly discussed issue is because by this point, the Civil War had concluded. Um, the war ended in 1865. One of the things I noticed with the um, Harper's New Monthly Magazine is that in this issue with what shall they do to be saved, the lead article, um, as you can see, is 
Personal Recollections of the War by a Virginian. The Civil War did contribute to the number of cases of addiction in America. Um, there were soldiers who, as a consequence of illness or injury, um, would end up uh, uh, being uh, administered opiates, and then they would still be using them years later. The impact of that on the overall number of cases can be overstated, but it does seem that the conclusion of the war was something that, um, in a sense, had to happen to sort of give editors and publishers the space to then focus on other issues. And one of the issues that then becomes publicly addressed is the case of domestic addiction, which had been increasing for much of the um, for much of the 19th century, and we then see many other works appearing. Um, uh, Alonzo Calkins' *Opium and the Opium Appetite* appears in 1871. So does a book by Dr. George Miller Beard called *Stimulants and Narcotics*. A few years later, some physicians begin publishing the *Quarterly Journal of Inebriety*, which, of course, is this effort to really focus on the problem of dependency and and addressing ways to treat it. Now. Um, so we have this, uh, um, this focus on cases of addiction, and, um, uh, and before then, the problem of addiction was something where people who struggled with it were very isolated. Overwhelmingly, the cases of, uh, of drug dependency or addiction at this time were what we would nowadays refer to as prescription drug abuse, that someone begins using a drug for a medical purpose, and then they continue their use of it. They typically felt very isolated because there was no real sense of community. Many did not know anyone else who was addicted, and let alone they didn't know how to address it, um, any kind of treatment method. And many believed that willpower should be sufficient to end their use. This created multiple problems. Part of it was that other family members could criticize them regarding them as simply being indulgent, that they kept using this drug um, on the assumption that they could end their use if they chose to. Meanwhile, the people who were themselves addicted oftentimes felt guilty because they believed that they should be able to stop and they didn't know why they couldn't. Um, and uh, as I will get to later, for reasons that are really unrelated to any of the other things I'll be discussing, we end up with drug relation at the national level um, arriving in the, um, in the 1910s. Now, a few of the main points that I do want to make, um, or I'll be making in this presentation. Um, one is that most American habitués throughout much of the, uh, most of the 19th century were white middle-class women. Um, and by the time that regulation takes place and it, the most important laws is passed in 1914, uh, the perception of the typical American drug user was a young man uh, who was not well off and whose use actually began for pleasure-seeking purposes rather than medical use. And given those conditions, there was a lot of support for regulation. Another thing is, as I mentioned, the late 1860s is where we really see the beginning of this concentrated focus on addiction as a domestic problem. How did Americans find out about addiction? How did they understand that that concept even existed before then? Um, overwhelmingly, they learned that from abroad. And again, I'll be expanding on these points. Um, but what happens is 
that there were many travelers' accounts where they would go to parts of Asia, Africa, um, what is now the Middle East, and they would describe pleasure-seeking use of opiates, for example, there, and other drugs, and that information makes its way back to, uh, to America. That is how Americans ended up learning about um, addiction and various dimensions, and not just the American public reading about it in various magazines, but also American doctors. Two other points that I'll be making. One is, as I say, that most American addiction did begin with medical use, and um, uh, it has been attributed that as much as 90% of the addiction that was occurring resulted from doctors excessively administering morphine in particular to patients because it provided such quick relief and because they didn't appreciate the, uh, the risks of abuse. And the other is there is a clear persistent theme of the degree to which um, drug use and attitudes toward, toward use, whose use would receive sympathy or be regarded as medical, as deserving of support, and whose would be regarded as criminal and threatening was very much shaped by race and by class. Uh, overwhelmingly, the writers were themselves white and middle class, and they tended, in many cases, to justify uh, the use by members of the white middle class to excuse it um, and to encourage ways to sort of help get that person back on track, whereas there was more likely to be criticism and condemnation um, by drug use by people who were not white um, or who were uh, or who were not well off. Yeah. They also tended to suggest that <clears throat> members of the white middle class were uniquely able to use these drugs responsibly. Um, and this idea was false, but I will, I will explain and elaborate in a bit. Now, um, one thing to give out briefly uh, is just the nature of addiction um, and the idea of addiction as a disease. Uh, it is a brain disease, and it has been recognized as such um, by the American Medical Association since the 1950s. Uh, what happens, and there's more to this, but when a person uses an addictive drug in an ongoing manner, the drug changes the person's brain. Um, and many drugs mimic neurotransmitters, which are chemical substances that the human body naturally produces. One example would be um, that the human body naturally produces endorphins, um, which help the body to endure pain. Morphine mimics endorphins. And in fact, the word endorphin is a portmanteau word that comes from endogenous morphine, meaning naturally produced morphine. Um, the drugs, however, are much more powerful than what the human body naturally produces. So the brain adjusts, for example, if the person is taking morphine consistently. Um, sometimes uh, one analogy is that it's as if a stereo is too loud and the brain is trying to adjust in order to, to accommodate it. The problem is that when the brain adjusts, it's then expecting that morphine to come in and if it's not there, the person will go into what we recognize as withdrawal. Um, and as the brain adjusts, the person develops tolerance and greater amounts are needed. Um, and so I, I found this image of um, how exposure to one dose of cocaine causes the second dose to have less of an impact, that there is an actual change to the brain, something that certainly was not recognized in the 19th century, um, but this is why it is indeed classified 
as a brain disease. This is the image of uh, the age of drugs from the magazine, the humor magazine pub published in 1900. It is uh, actually the image I chose for the, uh, for the cover of the book, um, showing how intense the, um, the craving for these drugs was. And as I mentioned, most of the drug addiction was among middle-class um, white people. And you can see that here they are uh, clamoring at the drugstore um, to buy their opium, or there's a, also a bottle of cocaine, for example, on the counter. Um, the national legislation came about, passed in 1914, went into effect in 1915. Before then, there were municipal laws in some uh, areas regulating drugs. There were some state laws, but they were not providing any kind of a really effective measure. Um, some of the laws were simply ignored. It was also the case when it's state by state, New York, the state of New York had rather strict laws about um, about drugs, neighboring New Jersey did not. And so there, and there also were drugs that were shipped through the mail. So there really was no meaningful way of controlling them through this time. Now, as a result, this had some benefits. It also had some uh, downsides. On the plus side, one thing that was kind of surprising to see, there was almost no association with addiction to a drug and crime. Once in a blue moon, I would see a case of somebody who was you know, trying to steal opium from a, from a drugstore. But overwhelmingly, that didn't happen because the drugs were legally available. Um, and the prices, because it the sales were legal, the prices were not terribly high. And so they were within reach for most people. On the other hand, the fact that they were legal gave them a certain degree of official sanction where many people would experiment and sort of buy this or buy that and were not familiar with the fact that addiction was a possible result. And so the number of habitual users escalated through much of the 19th century. And even though it was a hidden problem, we know this because opium was never produced on a significant level domestically. And in 1842, we see the um, beginning of uh, tariffs on it. And so we have statistics of opium imports and the opium imports were rising far out of proportion to the increase in the American population. I've been referring to opiates. I'd like to take a minute and explain a bit about what I mean when I refer to those. Um, opiates would be any uh, drug that comes from the opium poppy. I have a picture here of an opium poppy and you can see some uh, sort of uh, the, the raw opium sort of oozing out of it. Um, and the way it's cultivated is by cutting into the, the poppy and letting the, uh, the, the gummy substance ooze out. Um, the most popular option in 19th century America in terms of using an opiate was laudanum, which would be a combination of opium, alcohol, and spices. And there are different recipes for it, but it would be those essential um, uh, uh, three. And the effect and the benefits of these drugs, they were useful in treating insomnia and also in terms of treating pain. Paragoric, which was opium with camphor, was administered to, um, uh, to babies who, um, who would not sleep. And there were debates about the, the safety of, of administering them, but there were, there were many advocates for them and it was done quite frequently. The form of opium that is smoked is referred to as smoking opium. 
and it was processed in such a different way that it did not have medical value. And the first national law is actually against the form of opium that is smoked because it had no medical value. It was, and it was associated primarily with, um, um, with Chinese um, immigrant users. That was the first one that was outlawed um, and, uh, and it could be outlawed without outlawing opium because the, they varied so greatly. Morphine is an alkaloid of opium, which means it is the active or one of the active ingredients in it. With the isolation of morphine, it was possible to administer very specific doses to patients, whereas administering laudanum or, or opium itself, um, the, the concentration of that active ingredient would not be as easy to determine. And it was, um, and the, uh, uh, so we have predictable doses. And again, morphine injections began in the 1860s in earnest. And heroin, which appears in the 1890s, is a semi-synthetic opiate um, and, uh, and was administered for the treatment of coughs and such. Now, um, I will add that it could seem peculiar to have these drugs be so widely available. Part of it, we could you know, say that they should have uh, determined the risks of these before they made them available. With that said, this is a time when many people would not have had access to a physician, and there really were no alternative uh, painkillers or sleep aids available, which helps to explain their widespread availability. And there would be warnings about the risks, whether it was of overdoses or such, um, but they were widely available. Now, um, I have a picture here of, of uh, author Louisa May Alcott, um, who developed an addiction to opium uh, while, uh, after she contracted an illness um, while working um, as a nurse during the Civil War, and, uh, and later was able to say that she was glad that she was able to sleep without the aid of opium of any kind. Um, I included her a picture of her here because, as I said, middle-class women were the most likely to become habitual opiate users, um, and this was the result of various social pressures. Um, unlike members of the working class, members of the middle class had the money to see a doctor if they were ill. And as I mentioned, the vast majority of cases derived from a visit to a doctor who then recommended um, morphine or some other opiate. Unlike middle class men, there was no stigma associated with a woman seeking medical care. There was an idea that men should be able to withstand whatever kind of illness or pain that they were enduring rather than seeking medical help. And at the same time, it was considered unseemly for a woman or unseemly for a woman to drink alcohol. And there were observers at the time who suggested that the use of laudanum or morphine in a sense almost became women's equivalent of using alcohol. It was something that they would take that would sort of give them this, this, uh, this respite or this reverie. And it was socially accepted because to a degree, it was difficult to determine whether a woman was using it medically or whether she was using it um, for a pleasure-seeking um, pleasure purpose. Yeah. And one other contrast I'll just note, uh, there's sort of a, a distinction between opium use and, for example, the behavior of um, someone who, who drinks too much. If someone drinks too much, that person could become boisterous or combative. People who used opium tended to use it um, when they were alone, and it tended to render them quiet. This also helps to explain why the extensive habituation to opiates 
remained kind of hidden because the behavior of those who were addicted would not necessarily have been noticeable. As I said, in the period before the 18, late 1860s and beyond, um, Americans did learn of the concept of addiction and they learned it from sources from abroad. There are many that I could name um, in uh, in the 1870s, a physician named Alonzo Calkins said that there were more than 150 non-professional explorers who, and I'm quoting him, who made opium eating a subject of individual examination and wrote about it in their accounts. And these sources, to a large extent, are the only information, the only sources that the American public and American physicians had as they, um, as they tried to understand this, uh, this condition. One example I have here is Sir Jean Chardin's Travels into Persia. Um, now this is published in 1689, uh, his description of his uh, time in Persia in the 1670s. And in this work, um, Chardin had traveled to Persia uh, to buy jewels for his father's business. And many travel works were written um, in the 17th century and before and after. Um, and he observed non-medical drug use there and he described aspects of it in this work, and this gets the attention of doctors and others. His comments get reprinted very frequently. One example, in 1805, perhaps the most prominent American physician was a man named Dr. Benjamin Rush. Uh, he was a doctor in Philadelphia. He had signed the Declaration of Independence, a very well-respected um, physician, and he wrote a work in 1805 where he's describing the uses of opium. And here I have from his medical inquiries and observations. And you can see about halfway down, it says, Chardin informs us that this medicine, opium, is frequently used in the Eastern countries to abate the pains and weaknesses of old age by those people who are debarred the use of wine by the religion of Muhammad. And um, as I say, a lot of focus was on Muslim users, the idea being that since they, um, uh, their religion forbade the use of alcohol, that many would use opium. By the time that Benjamin Rush was writing this, this was you know, about 130 years after Chardin had visited Persia, but the information was still being used because it remained, this and other accounts remained the best, um, the best uh, um, accounts that were available. And again, because there wasn't that recognition of this as a major problem, in the United States. Some travelers at the same time to um, parts of the non-Western world in particular would describe people who consumed opium publicly, which again afforded an opportunity to describe the physical effects. And I'm going to share one, this is from later, this is from the 1830s. There was a German physician named F.W. Oppenheim uh, who was describing Turkish opium eaters and what he wrote in his account, and here again, I, I have uh, um, his account being re reprinted around the time that he said it in the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal. And as you can see, he says, the habitual opium eater is instantly recognized by his appearance, a total attenuation of body, a withered yellow countenance, a lame gait, a bending of the spine so that the person is almost circular in form, betray him at the first glance. This account gets reprinted widely. And partly because it is, you know, kind of interesting, surprising to have that description. At the same time, it further sort of reinforces the belief 
that there was nobody addicted in America, because of course what he's describing, the idea is that if anyone were addicted, it would be obvious and that there was no one in America who, who you know, fit that description where, where their use would be so striking. A lot of the focus was on these accounts where primarily European men would travel um, to various parts of the world and would then, traveling for other reasons, they would describe what they, uh, what they saw, including um, drug use that was non-medical in nature, perhaps pleasure-seeking in nature, or, um, or um, uh, sustaining an addiction. In 1821, we had what is regarded as the first um, or at least the first extant work written by someone who was um, himself addicted, and that is Thomas de Quincey, uh, who published Confessions of an English Opium Eater in 1821, initially doing so anonymously. Part of what we see in the American reactions to this, and again, the reactions were overwhelmingly those of members of the white middle class, um, he describes his addiction and he insists Partly what he did was to suggest that there, he describes the, um, what he called the pleasures of opium, which did lead some American readers to try the drug for that purpose. He also describes the nightmares that seemed to last for centuries. He also insists that even though many people had told him that he should be able to quit and that he should just reduce the dose a little bit each day, that even though that could be done for a short time, that, that really did not work, that the pain became so excruciating. And one of the uh, responses from Americans with regard to De Quincey um, was the idea that some Americans were surprised that a white, well-educated Englishman would not have what it took to withstand addiction. Um, I, I have a quote from a, a writer in Chicago in the 1870s, because again, the De Quincey's influence or book was very influential. Um, he said that the drug must have an absorbing power because of De, because, and I'm quoting, De Quincey's strong intellect was scarcely proof against its tenacious clutch. So we have Americans learning many things from abroad. Partly it's the accounts of use elsewhere. Partly it is from De Quincey's use. And the third piece of this would be what I mentioned sort of at the beginning um, with the first opium war. Uh, in that conflict, as I say, British merchants had been bringing opium into China. What they were doing was, you know, overwhelmingly illegal. They did have some cooperation from, um, uh, from uh, uh, Chinese people who were, who were to some degree, some Chinese were, were uh, cooperating, but it was illegal. And when the Chinese government tried to put a stop to it, Great Britain ends up waging war and ends up winning that conflict. One of the things that that showed to Americans was not only how much money there was, um, how lucrative the international opium trade could be, and this determination to prosecute it, there was also shock because the assumption had been that because the English were predominantly Christian, that they would behave in the more moral manner. Um, and then seeing that not be the case um, in that conflict. And I have this from a magazine or a, a, yeah, a journal called the Christian Recorder and Boston Observer while the war was going on. 
and they do have some critical comments for China, but they say it is a spectacle truly sublime when the sovereign of a great nation, referring to China, um, uses his power for the destruction of its chief social evil. And so you have this recognition of this other dimension of it. And again, all of this that I'm describing was information that Americans were receiving from abroad at a time when there really was um, when there really was very little uh, uh, information about about addiction at home. Now, um, at this time, however, uh, there was escalation in the use. And I have this quote from Alonzo Calkins' Opium and the Opium Appetite, uh, in which he's quoting a physician who uh, is living in a town where the population had not really changed over 20 years, but um, he had, where he used to sell 50 pounds of opium in a year, he was selling 300 pounds now. Of laudanum, he used to sell a certain amount, and now it was four times that, and that he had 50 regular customers. So a lot of the information about this escalation in use, we see it not only in the import uh, uh, tariff records, um, we, in the customs records, we also see it in these anecdotal examples, and there were many of them, of druggists who were just seeing this increase in their sales over time. When the use began to focus on Americans, as I've mentioned, the, the largest group of um, people who were addicted in the United States at the time were middle-class white women who, for the most part, who went to a doctor with an illness, the doctor prescribes um, an opiate, and then they, they continue using it. Those who received the most attention, however, were Chinese immigrants who opened opium dens. Part of this was the, uh, due to anti-Chinese prejudice. Part of this was the fact that the opium dens were public spaces. And what we see is that there were reporters who were determined to either visit the dens and describe them or who would visit the um, dens and try to photograph them. And there was one case, this is from 1892, uh, in which um, a photographer, and here, here's the photo that they were able to snap, um, a photographer lurked outside while um, his associates were chatting with the people inside, and then he rushes in, he shoots the picture, and he leaves. And you see the, uh, the inhabitants looking very shocked. You can also see the hat of the man he was working with in the foreground. Um, there was this determination to capture this behavior and to share it. And as you can see when um, the, the title of the article is actually the opium den pictures, how they were taken, really taking pride in the fact that they got these, these uh, images and almost focusing on the process more than on the topic. I mention this because as I was doing my research, as I was assembling this presentation, when I'm looking for images, one of the things that always strikes me is how you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. The number of pictures of Chinese users of opium dens, overwhelmingly, those are the pictures that one finds. And meanwhile, occasionally there will be a picture of white users in an opium den. Um, occasionally, I do find those, but there is this image in terms of users of this overwhelming focus on Chinese immigrants. And I think that it's because the use by, by in many cases, middle-class white women 
was not only that their usage was hidden, but also because it was hidden, we don't have the photographs and the, and the dens seem more visible. Yeah. Um, one of the things that seems, in my opinion, to be sort of an enduring aspect in terms of attitudes toward addiction um, is who gets sympathy and who does not. And here's how I describe it. There are a couple of reasons why a person could use a drug. Some could be feeling lousy, they're ill, and they're taking the drug in order to restore health. That has public sanction because the person is not able to be very productive. They're taking the drug to restore productivity. But if a person already feels fine and is taking a drug to feel better than fine, to feel some sort of euphoria, then there's criticism because the idea is that the person is already in a state to meet their social obligations and they are taking steps that will make them um, less able to do so. It's why, for example, there is more sympathy for someone who, there is sympathy for someone who uh, suffers from prescription drug uh, addiction that derived from prescription use, but not from pleasure seeking use so much. Therefore, the idea is if it's medically necessary, then that's fine. If it's not, then it isn't. And what we see is time and again, there were arguments that members of the white middle class were inherently less healthy than members of other groups. And if they were less healthy, then they had greater license to use these drugs. Um, for example, uh, there was an ailment that was called neurasthenia um, in the late 19th century. And it was connected with the idea that there was, it was possible to be exhausted from what they regarded as modern times. Um, the fact that you have the advent of the telegraph and you have trains going faster and more of the world sort of connected that, for example, a businessman could become exhausted from a day's work and therefore could need something in order to, uh, in order to help him kind of uh, uh, restore his health at the end of a day. Meanwhile, the idea was that anyone who had a job that was uh, working outdoors, working with their hands, was free from that kind of exhausting setting and therefore would not have need of a drug. Um, one quote I have, this is from 1888, and there was a physician uh, who wrote in the Quarterly Journal of, of Inebriety, um, and the focus is, and they're using here the term barbarians are not nervous, they're talking, looking at this um, in an international context, et cetera. Um, but what they say is market returns and stock quotations are unknown. Telephones and telegraphs, daily newspapers with their crowded columns of horrors and crimes are not thrust upon them. And the shriek of the steam engine does not disturb their sleep. And so the idea that the intensity of modern times had this draining effect and thereby made the use of drugs necessary. And whether they're looking abroad, whether they are looking um, at, uh, at members of the, um, of the working class uh, or those who worked outside at home, they do not see the need uh, that they would have any need for, um, uh, for, for medicine. Now, of course, they're not considering the idea that physical work can be exhausting and that people's weariness and um, unease could derive from things outside of their work. We also see this with a, an ongoing belief that people who were black were inherently healthy. Um, there was one, and, and part of this is focusing on people who were enslaved, part of it, part of it not. 
Uh, there was one Virginian slave owner who dismissed the suggestion that a woman who he enslaved could be ill. And he said that any um, enslaved woman who pretended to be ill, and I'm quoting, she plays the lady at your expense, that it was just a way to try to get out of work. When a, um, uh, the, let's see, when the um, uh, landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted was visiting the South, um, he was, he wrote an account of it, and he said that he had not found um, uh, one or more cases of field hands who were not at work. What would happen is that the proprietor or overseer would express the suspicion that the person was really as well able to work as anyone else on the plantation. Let's see. Okay, now I think I'm running a bit short on time. Let me just mention a few other dimensions of this. And, and also at the end of the Civil War, Union soldiers, um, Black Union soldiers, who had who asserted that they had illnesses that couldn't really be documented were far less likely to be believed than their white counterparts. So much of this is about who receives the benefit of the doubt. One other dimension of I'll make this, and this is again something that I just saw recurringly, um, was the impact of uh, the notion that there are marginalized groups, groups who aren't white, who will use a drug and by using the drug, they then become a threat to um, to uh, to to um, white Americans, um, and we see this with Native Americans and peyote um, concerns that the Comanche Indians uh, were using peyote and that it could lead to destructive behavior. Um, many assertions, which I've established, were baseless um, that black men would use cocaine and then that under that influence, they would then, um, uh, they would then um, uh, rape white women. And there is not a single documented case of that. And it, it was derived from a theory that was set out without evidence and was then repeated. We also see this with regard to Mexican immigrant, immigrants and marijuana. And we also see this with regard to Chinese immigrants and opium smoking and the idea of them sort of luring um, uh, the idea of them sort of luring uh, um, uh, white youth um, to the dens. Now, um, there was at the same time a tendency to want to support uh, white youth um, who became addicted. And this is an article about a couple, they were both uh, uh, morphine users and the judge ended up not charging them because he believed they were in love and that they should just get married um, because then and they, and they could help each other in their use, a way of trying to get them back on track rather than criticizing. I mentioned that the actual policies for national regulation come about for a completely unrelated reason to what I've been talking about. Um, in 1898, the U.S. fights the Spanish-American War and acquires the Philippines as a colony and wanted to end opium use there and decided to try to attain this by... Um, pursuing international control of the drug traffic because that would be really the only way. The belief of some of the policymakers was they couldn't do that on an international scale unless they had um, laws on the books at home, that, that the U.S. couldn't tell other countries they needed you know, strict policies when the U.S. had none. And so they had the measure against opium smoking in 1909, a measure in 1914 to regulate opiates and cocaine. Um, and uh, as a consequence of that, we see the uh, period of regulation 
And what also happens is we then have the increase in the association of, um, of uh, drug use and crime, something that, again, had not been there earlier, and uh, even though we associate it so closely, wouldn't have existed then.